0: From 2400 Sports, Odyssey, and Major League Baseball. This is the PBP Voices of Baseball.
1: We bring you the people who bring you the game.
0: Hello, 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 and welcome into the PBP Voices of Baseball, our final episode of the regular season. And for this one, we've got a doozy. Just taped a couple of weeks ago with the great Bob Costas. You should not need his resume. Um, You probably remember him from doing NBA finals for years with the Jordan Bulls and many others on NBC, NFL studio shows over there, Olympics studio shows, and the Major League Baseball Game of the Week for NBC in the 80s as the understudy for and the eventual partner with Vin Scully. There were lots of postseason series in the 90s. But I guess it's his place as a commentator on the state of baseball that cemented him in the zeitgeist as part of Ken Burns's baseball documentary series and much, much more. And he still does games, which we will discuss, including a postseason assignment this season upcoming. The big thing, though, the big takeaway that I want you to know is what a kind and generous and engaging man he is the connection that we had in conversation was so easy and so fun you'll hear it and he didn't have to bother to try and really connect you know he stayed on after we finished our conversation for like 20 or 30 minutes afterwards and we just talked about all sorts of stuff at one point we were discussing barry bonds and clemens and a rod and manny and i told him i needed to take a break and call 1994 matt spiegel and tell him he was having a conversation with bob costas and bob said well i hope i lived up to it and i said are you kidding you exceeded it before we get to bob stick around for the end of the show and i'll tell you about a very special playoff episode we have coming up for you next week but now to mr costas Got a chance to tell him so many things about our shared love for baseball, and went deep into Bob Costas's mind as a lover of the sport and, of course, of the craft. Enjoy. All right, I welcome a hero, a guest of great desire, and a legend, Bob Costas. Bob, I have uh, I have questions. Yes, um, but uh, yes, I and but I, I wanted to start with this because it can't be a coincidence that as your vast and varied broadcast career is progressively simplified itself by your own choosing baseball mm-hmm. remains. Um, so I, I assume yeah. that base, that baseball play by play, which is what I'm investigating here is yeah. one of the first broadcast loves for you as a kid in Queens, but I don't know, is there an origin story of baseball play by play and your love specifically?
1: Yeah, I don't know if there's really an origin story. It just kind of seeped in. Uh, When I first became aware of sports, and for that matter, of radio and television, baseball was still the unquestioned national pastime. Now, the Dodgers and Giants had just left for the West Coast, and the Mets didn't exist yet, but the Yankees were the best team in baseball year in and year out when I was a little kid, and their announcers were Mel Allen and Red Barber, their primary announcers. So while I had nothing to compare it to, I was hearing that kind of lyrical, well-paced soundtrack of baseball. And then very briefly, just as it happened, we lived in Los Angeles in Southern California for a year and a half in the early 60s. And I listened to Vin Scully on a transistor radio. So basically at that point, when I'm 10 years old, all I know of baseball broadcasting is Mel Allen, Red Barber, and Vin Scully. And then subsequently, every time I heard another broadcast, now there were exceptions, Uh, I soon became sophisticated enough to know that Ernie Harwell, who I'd listened to on WJR in Detroit, I'd go out to my father's car with the keys when I was much too young to drive and just turn it one click to the right. And then I would start fiddling with the dial. And i pick up WJR in Detroit Nernie Harwell and KDKA in Pittsburgh uh, and Bob Prince. Uh, and sometimes on a very clear night, Harry Carey and Jack Buck uh, on KMOX, where they were partners on the Cardinals games. And they were much different in their styles. Um, and along came Lindsey Nelson and Bob Murphy with the Mets in 1962 with Ralph Kiner, who was endearing, but not because he was a classic baseball broadcaster, uh, but... Having mentioned at the beginning of this ramble, Alan Barber and Scully, it became clear to me even when I was like 12 years old. Other than the few others I mentioned, it was a big drop-off. There were there were others who were competent, but they didn't have that special sauce that turned a baseball broadcast into a melody. So that that enchanted me when I was a kid.
0: Oh, understandably so. You know, it, it's it's interesting because. Red and Mel as two play by play guys who were partners taking turns but also working together mm-hmm. still is the way still is the way that the Mets do it. Um with two play by play folks. Last night, just last night, I was listening to John Miller and Dave Fleming doing mm-hmm. the Giants game as Alex Cobb was trying to finish out that no hitter. And I right. was sitting on the balcony listening, and and there's that well, timelessness I was, I was watching listening it. to that.
1: I was watching it as it happened with uh Kruko and Kuiper. On TV.
0: I mean, that that's two great teams. That's two, both phenomenal broadcast teams right there. But I, I i don't know how many ball clubs do the two play-by-play voices, both with that lyrical, melodic sensibility, as as partners anymore. It, it's an old model. It doesn't exist too much anymore.
1: Not, not too much. I haven't done a complete survey. I can't say exactly to what extent, but I would say the majority are not like that. And the way it was done back then was... Yeah, there were two guys or maybe even three. The Brooklyn Dodgers had Red Barber, Connie Desmond and the young Vin Scully, but seldom were they really on the air simultaneously. One guy would have his innings, the other guy would have his innings and Red Barber might say, and now to take you through the fourth and fifth, here's Vin Scully. And then Vin would, oh, thank you, Red. And maybe, maybe they talked to each other a little bit, but it wasn't like one's the play-by-play guy and one's the analyst the whole idea of an analyst really didn't exist they were classic yeah. play-by-play men and even if they were former ball players who became play-by-play guys like Wade hoyt the yankee pitcher who became the cincinnati reds broadcaster uh they took the role of play-by-play man rather than than analyst
0: mm-hmm i you know there was a moment last night um Uh, Your friend, John Boogshambi, gave me a lift home from Wrigley Field last night. And Uh we're listening to John Miller call this game. And there's a moment where John Miller says, "Um, there's a foul ball off to the left over the moon. It's not full. It looks full. It'll be full tomorrow (laughs) night. Just (laughs) it was just we both grinned and giggled. Because he's such a master, it's just flowing into the description of oh, there's the moon. I might as well describe that for
1: people. He's That that detail detail is important. And of course even a good radio broadcaster now uh, has grown up with television. And they all have a monitor in the booth. Which is useful, especially if there's uh, a disputed play and you want to look at it again and you describe it. But Apart from that, you should really, if you're on the radio, call a game as if you're talking to someone who doesn't own a television or is blind. That really is the way it should be done. And there is too much of an assumption um, because so much of television is seeped in. It's rare to hear a radio broadcaster, even an otherwise good one, describe a pitcher's delivery or a batter's stance or what number does the guy wear all those little things are taken for granted because of television
0: what is it about the single voice and the hum of the baseball game and being Outside, whether it was listening to Ernie Harwell on a porch Mm -hmm. in Detroit or me in Chicago listening to John Miller or you in, in Queens listening to Mel and Red. What is it about the timelessness of that that connects us through the generations? I don't know.
1: Well, I think, first of all, baseball has the deepest and richest history of any sport. So there's more to call upon. Also. It has always had a pleasing, leisurely pace. More recently, it had a plodding, lethargic pace. They're trying to get back to the ideal pace. But it's never going to be a frenetic pace, nor should it be. And because it was always 154 or then 162 games, even though any individual game could be exciting and in its own way, it's important as part of a pennant race, until you get down to the postseason or the last few days of playoff qualifying, none of these games seems like life and death. It's part of the spring and summer. And very often on the radio, people have it while they're doing other things. They're at the beach, they're in the car, they're in the backyard barbecuing, whatever they're doing. And the game is just kind of a presence in a different way than you would follow a once a week football game. Not just because of the time of the year, because it's fall and winter for football, but because that football game seems more essential. You know, it's once a week and it's your team. Um, and basketball and hockey, which call upon a considerable amount of skill to call well, be it on television or on radio, it's still a different thing. I marveled at Doc Emmerich, who was the only guy that I know that I don't have as deep a knowledge of hockey broadcasting as I might have of other sports, but I know a bit about it. There are a handful of guys that were as good as Doc at following the pace of play, the line changes, the passing of the puck. Um, the sometimes frantic movement in hockey. But I couldn't think of anyone else who could drop in anecdotal material like he could. And I spoke with him about it, and that came from not only his innate broadcasting ability, but his love of baseball, which was really his first love. And all the great baseball announcers incorporated that. So he tried to, to whatever extent hockey allowed, uh, which helped distinguish him from other hockey announcers. But where was
0: I? Uh, That... (laughs) It, no, <laughs> no, that that's remarkable. I didn't know that about Doc. Hey, Doc has come up on this podcast and in these conversations because I've spent a lot of time thinking about verb choice for soft contact on the ground, hard contact yeah. on the ground, soft mm-hmm. contact in the air, hard contact in the air, and gone through synonyms and written them down and tried to internalize them for the times that I've gotten a chance to do radio play by play. And mm-hmm. no one in any sport may have ever been better than that than Doc Emmerich. The the verb choices waffle oh, yeah. boarded.
1: Right? He it's unbelievable. It. He pitchforks it. Which is which is such a vivid. Yeah, well, it was a guy with a pitchfork. He's going like that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it gives it gives you a lot. Um, so so growing up, um, you were my game of the week. You and Tony Kubek is it was was my appointment Saturday viewing. Well, there was also um, and Vin, I know, and Joe
1: at, Vin and Joe at the same time. Can't slight them.
0: No, I would not. I I, I would never. And then later, you and Vin, as you would host the the uh, the games and hand off to Vin and occasionally fill in for Vin. So there was an interchangeable yeah. feeling to me as a young viewer.
1: Yeah, that, w- that was in, in the World Series or or the LCS. Yeah.
0: Yes. Um. So... But I and and here you are still at this point uh, all these years later still do, doing games on MLB Network um, mm-hmm. and and, TB, and TBS will there be TBS this year or a studio? Yeah, I'll
1: I'll do one of the two National League Division Series for TBS with Ron Darling this October.
0: Oh, that's wonderful! That's great. Uh, a great play-by-play person has to be a technician and an entertainer both. And people yes. come at this from different angles. Where would you say you started on that scale of technician, entertainer, and where are you now?
1: I think you have to start from the technician standpoint because you have to master the nuts and bolts. You also have to remember that while I did a handful, and I mean a handful of games on radio, filling in for Jack Buck on KMOX, and I did some minor league games when I was at Syracuse, it's probably less than a dozen. So almost everything I've done was not only on television, it's on network television. So as much regard as I have for the great radio announcers, and I may have been influenced by them, certainly I was, Uh, everything I've done has been essentially on television. But even there, you're looking to master the nuts and bolts of it first. Before you can deal in any flights of fancy and musings, you better get the ABCs down. I think everybody starts there. I think even Vin Scully probably started there. And then but it didn't take him as long as it took most mortal men uh, to get to a different place. But you still have to master the basics first and then it becomes a blend. Um, And I think what you listened to in the 1980s on the game of the week and even in the 90s when. NBC didn't have a regular season package, but we had the Division Series and the LCS with me and Bob Uper and Joe Morgan. And then every other year, the World Series, there was more of an understanding of the relationship in the booth on the part of the audience. Now, doing games on MLB, first of all, let's say if you're doing the Mets at the Cardinals, that game's not on in New York or St. Louis, you know, so people are less invested in it. And it's it's not the game of the week or the postseason game. So even if I have a great relationship with Tom Verducci or with Ron Darling, that can't be expressed and appreciated in quite the same way as Saturday after Saturday, year after year with Tony Kubek, or Vin with Joe Garagiola or Ron Darling in a booth with Gary Cohen and Keith Hernandez, where not only have they been together for a long time, And all the little quirks and asides and goofy stuff comes into play. But virtually everybody watching is a Met fan. And so they're feeling the same highs and lows, which is different than a national broadcast. You have to take into account all those things. So I think if I were a local broadcaster, which I thought that my, my biggest aspiration when I was at Syracuse University in my 20s, was to be a local baseball broadcaster somewhere. And in my mind's eye, on the radio. And I think had I had that happened, then even more of a whimsical side uh, would come out. It came out with Euchre. It came out with Kubik. Um It came out in different shows with Ahmad Rashad and studio shows. But it's just a different relationship on national TV as opposed to locally, my team. My voice of my team. That's a whole different deal. Um, Harry Carey, especially the Harry Carey of the Cubs, not of the Cardinals, was a mm-hmm. national treasure in the sense that with the superstation, some guy in Tacoma was eavesdropping on the Cubs broadcast, but it was still a 100% Cubs broadcast and it was a 100% Harry broadcast. He wasn't doing it for a guy in New Hampshire or a guy in Sacramento. And so the guy in Sacramento who sought it out appreciated it on its own for its own um, merit. Whereas if someone had decided, Hey, Harry, we're we're going to have you instead of Joe Buck do the world <laughs> series. Some people would be delighted and others that'd be an insurrection, you know,
0: yeah, <laughs>
1: because that just absolutely. doesn't play by and large nationally. So this is a roundabout way of saying that. I think, I think that I had a, a discernible style that wasn't generic um, and that went beyond the nuts and bolts and included observations not only about the game or, or how the weather was that day or or look at this guy with the crazy face paint and the bleachers or that was all there too. but I tended on national broadcasts where I thought appropriate to comment on the state of the game and issues surrounding the game. But never, never with the bases loaded in the ninth inning in a one run game. You know, you have to find your spots. Uh, but I, I tried I tried to slip that in. So, you know, once I, I, the bottom line would be once you've mastered the basics, then you can go wherever your specific sensibility takes you.
0: Mm-hmm. It, it, it makes all the sense in the world. A couple things there. I've talked with Joe Buck several times uh about this phenomenon and now joe davis deals with it of, mm-hmm. and you'll deal with it in the playoffs uh and do it on tbs that you, you're with this companion sport that the fans yes. are with their local people all year long mm-hmm. and you forge this incredible connection and you go on the journey right. then you're then you're deposited to national voices yes and often in your role and joe's role you are loathed by both fan bases equally and assumed that a bias is there equally. And it's what, 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 what a a potentially tormenting spot for a human being to be in.
1: This is as old as network baseball on television itself. And you get much less of it with football, because even though football has local radio broadcasters in the NFL, every game is a network game. So there's not as much of an attachment and basketball or hockey are different from baseball. So I've said this for a long time. As long as the technology allows it, why not do the equivalent of a Manning cast or a K-Rod cast? So let's say last year it's the Guardians and the Yankees or on Darling and I did on TBS. Let's say you want to hear Tom Hamilton, the terrific voice of the guardians, even though he's their radio voice, he's their primary guy. So they'd move him over in this experiment that I'm talking about. Why not just have a parallel telecast? They have to show the same commercials because you have to protect the very large uh, rights fee uh, investment of the network. They have to show the same commercials. They can't show the local commercials Um, and they maybe they get one dedicated camera But basically, they're relying on whatever the TBS or the Fox people are putting out. And that might be a little bit off center from what they're talking about at any given time. But they'd adjust to it. And the point would be that if you want to hear Tom Hamilton, you should hear Tom Hamilton, because that's the way your team sounds. And then some people might Mm -hmm. go back and forth, but they would have that option. And as long as there was a way and the technology is there, to protect the investment of the network, it might actually increase their ratings. Because some people might say, oh, I get, I get my guy, or now I can go over here and see what Costas is saying or whatever. But to the other yeah. question about the they hate both sides, the guy yes. in Cleveland doesn't think I hate the Yankees. And the guy in New York doesn't think I hate the Guardians. <laughs> they only think you hate <laughs> their team. And I've, I've answered this question before, Matt. Um, And maybe you've heard me give these exact same examples. I don't think any network broadcaster has ever received a letter back when people wrote letters or an email to the effect of, dear Mr. Buck, Costas, Davis, whatever. I live in Tacoma and I'm a fan of the Seattle Mariners. Hence, I had no rooting interest in the World Series between the Phillies and the Astros, other than the fact that I'm a baseball fan. And yet, I was appalled by your obvious bias toward the Astros or the Phillies. That <laughs> no one has ever received one communication to that effect. But they have received virtually the identical letter from fans of both teams watching the same broadcast, hearing the exact same words, and interpreting those words as bias against their team including in supposedly sophisticated markets like New York and San Francisco, because we know that fan is short for fanatic and even intelligent, Mm -hmm. otherwise rational people throw that out the window when it comes to their team, where their definition of objectivity is to root as crazily for their team, which is their right, enjoy it as they are, to see it through the prism of their fandom. So in that world, understandably, their team loses. The other team doesn't win. Their team wins. The other team doesn't lose. There is no other fan base that they're concerned about. So if you show Mm -hmm. appreciation, as you should, for both teams, then that sounds different than their local broadcast is likely to sound. And so there are some criticisms or observations that a fair-minded people, person rather, does take into account. But this one falls into the category of a sort of benign lunacy. I get it. (laughs) I'm not offended by it. But I'm telling you, there is not a scintilla's worth of truth in any of it. It is completely stupid. And I'm going to give you one last example. Vin Scully. Vin Scully the paragon of professionalism is doing the 1986 world series one of the most famous yeah. world series the red sox and the yankees with joe garagiola and this is before twitter existed or anything else uh, but people would call a station with a complaint and the nbc station in boston logged some 800 complaints that vin and joe were unfair to the red sox simultaneously on the same night a thousand complaints in New York, roughly, is around round figures, a thousand complaints to WNBC in New York or to NBC headquarters in New York, complaining about the exact opposite. They're unfair to the Mets. Oh. I attribute the difference to the larger population of New York and the fact that back then there was such a thing as a toll call. So it would cost you to call from Boston or Vermont or whatever uh, was part of uh, Red Sox territory. But the point was that people in sophisticated cities where they read the Boston Globe and the New York Times were convinced that Vin Scully was was dumping on their team with the same words on the same night.
0: This is is what I told Joe. You've read or seen 1984, Orwell's 1984, right? As the as the working force is going through its day, they make them pause and look up, and show them uh, the enemy, give them something to hate. They call it the two minutes mm-hmm. hate, and everyone looks at the screen and shrieks and th- 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 throws all their anger there, and then they go back to work. This is your job: yes. is to just accept the hate and the venom um, as people work their feelings through. This is part of the 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 joy yeah. and the the uh, of, there, there of pro is... sports and
1: yes. There are some criticisms, including self-criticisms, that you should take quite seriously. This is one mm-hmm. that you should just laugh at and dismiss.
0: I I, wa- I wanted to circle back, Bob, to the uh, the idea of the entertainer and the technician. Um, the premise for this podcast and my personal fascination with the craft and the job is that I'm a talk show host and I've been a writer and a voiceover guy and a singer mm-hmm. and a million other things for decades and decades. And at age 50, I got my chance to do my first inning of major league baseball. How did it go? Post in the fifth for the, great pre-post in fifth for the Cubs. I, I did three years, 12 innings total over three years. And then this mm-hmm. year I got the chance to do three games in full when Pat Hughes went into the hall of fame and got, got the yeah. fancy Frick award. So I did Cubs Cardinals for three full games. It was the first three of their eight game win streak, but I am an entertainer who has come at it completely green at the beginning of three years ago from the technical perspective. And it's been yeah. fascinating. I have a nephew. Nephew's a AAA broadcaster. So I know you have to have the technician part first, but sometimes that's not the way it can go. So that, that's kind of the, the, the idea for, for how we end up talking about it um, with some of the the depth I'm trying to get to. Yeah.
1: Well, somebody, you know, in a these days, a two-man radio booth is different than what I described in the 50s and 60s you know Vin Scully adhered to that model that was the model and so he took that forward when he did radio for the Dodgers Jerry Doggett was at his side and he'd say well here's Jerry Doggett thank you Jerry and then he would just do what he did and then on television he worked alone but he was the last of those doing that Um, on radio now you'll usually hear two voices the play-by-play guy is the dominant voice. But it's not like the other guy isn't there at all. And the other guy is almost always a former player and therefore a color man or or analyst. But to your point, somebody's got to drive the bus. You know, someone else can be the conversationalist in the passenger seat, but somebody's got to drive the bus. And some of that is just getting you from point A to point B. And that is the duty of the play by play man, no matter how colorful that play by play man's personality might be.
0: You're right, and broadcasting is broadcasting in some of that regards. I know how to come in mm-hmm. and out of break, and I know how to do yeah. the live reads and slide that in and and set people up. But it, obviously, history is littered with former ball players who learn to be play-by-play technicians. Yes. So it can happen. Right, Euchre Brantley right now um, does several. In- I mean, there's there's a million, obviously. Probably the
1: Euchre is probably the best of them because his it's amazing. At 89 going on 90 he sounds almost exactly the same as he did 20 years ago but it's if incredible. you didn't know if you took out all the great mr baseball comedy and you didn't know of the futility of his career and you just listen to his calls they're terrific i mean you would have no idea he could get he could he could have gotten the frick award just on the basis of his pure play-by-play and leave the persona aside, but of course, when you combine it with the persona, then then you got a baseball treasure.
0: Bob, um, the perch where you sit uh, mm-hmm. above the game with that perfect view, being able to see the whole field, yeah. uh, is special. Is special. And I wondered if there's what what's something that you can see from that spot when you work that that fans. Would learn a lot about the game from if they were able to sit there and watch from there?
1: Well, you know, um, there are some ballparks, especially now, where there are skyboxes and all the revenue producing things. And eventually the, the broadcast booth gets put like at the top of a wedding cake. The worst in my experience, and I haven't broadcast games in all 30 major league parks Thirty present major league parks but of the ones that i've done games from a national stadium in dc that the pitch is so extreme that when you first do a game there you think that every routine fly ball is going out of the park it's almost impossible to judge um the same thing was true when they wedding caked fenway park because there was no other way to do it Um, And then you had to get used to it because Fenway and Tiger Stadium used to be the booths that were closest to the field. You really felt like you were in the game. If the crowd was quiet between innings, you could almost hear conversations from down on the field. And Ernie Harwell eventually had to put a net up in front of him as he got a little bit older and his reflexes dulled a little bit because foul balls would come straight back so quickly into that booth because they weren't coming at the same arc they come back like five or six a game. Now maybe five or six a season might find its way into a, uh, a way up their uh, broadcast booth. So what was my point? I had a point. What could what I say? No, no, and you,
0: know, we, you were talking about how, how the perch changes from place to yeah. place and you, and, and you're right. Yeah. Because, because I, I can read, I can read stuff well from Wrigley uh, now, but you're right. Fenway or, or the nationals is legendarily right. bad. Um, but, yeah so so question was uh, what can you learn about the game like watching the fielders or watching the ball but, but but what you're saying is like learning how to read the ball off the bat is supposed to be what you get yeah. great at in that spot.
1: Yeah and it it's it's a little more or less difficult depending yeah. upon uh the the angle and um the the relationship to the field uh but what you can see that the person in the stands or at home can't see. You simultaneously see the entire field with the naked eye. But you've also got the monitor there, which isn't just showing you program, you have an ISO camera. So that's searching around for interesting stuff. Who's in the bullpen? Um, or here's a possible shot we might go to of a kid with an ice cream cone smeared all over his face. Um, here's the, the manager in the dugout. Plus, you've got your stat guy and whatever preparation you've brought to it. So you're in a different state of mind. Um, Nobody, I mean, even an avid fan sitting right behind home plate or watching on television, really into the game, concentrates on every pitch. But you have to when you're calling the game. And three hours of concentration, even with quicker games now, you figure the coming on, getting off, three hours, roughly, is not the usual thing. You know, people don't do that in the office. Three hours of, no, it, you do get two minutes maybe in between. Um, but what I've taken to doing, unless I look and I see it's my wife or one of my kids, people text you during a game, right? This didn't happen a generation ago. They text you during the game and they say, hey, that was a great catch. Or you think they should take this guy out now? Hey, you're sitting on your ass. I'm working, don't you understand that? I actually had a guy I went to high school with, I swear, I swear, I'm doing the game. It's in Philadelphia, it's like five years ago. And I get a text from this guy, and this is what he says. Curious, Clint, when you do a game in Philly, do you take Amtrak or do you drive back to New York? I'll get around to responding to this Not immediately after the game, maybe in a week when I have nothing else to do. Okay, so so ideally, these two minutes, maybe you don't have to concentrate as intensely, but that's when you take stock. You know what? What haven't we gotten to? Uh, Let me check on this. Maybe this is when you slurp a, a bit of coffee or whatever it is. Um, yes. Yeah. But if
0: there's a forced there's a forced mindfulness to actually do in the job, which is a beautiful is, thing. We don't do we don't do it much in our lives. Turning off the phone for three hours is a rarity and, it, and it's it, a joy when you're doing a game.
1: Cor- correct. Because you're locked into that. But the other thing that you can see in from the booth under normal circumstances that even the most observant fan can't if if he or she's watching on television is. A ball hit into the gap. Where is everybody? Because That's then the your best. eyes are your eyes are going to be flashing between the field and the monitor. You want to know. And I always position the monitor so I don't have to turn my head. I have it like this way, so I barely have to move my eyes to see both that and, and the field. And a great director will capture what's happening. But what you don't realize, because you're watching on television, you don't realize that the announcer, okay, now the ball's against the wall. Who's the runner? How fast is he? He's rounding second. What's the third base coach doing? How many outs are there? Two outs are going to send him. one out, maybe going to stop him. Who's on deck, right? Who's on deck. So that would affect it. What's the score of the game that would affect it. What's the third base coach doing? What's the relay guy doing? You know, where's, where's he looking? Is he looking to the plate or is he going to try to get the trail runner at third? Now, this will be well cut by the director, but you're seeing all this in real time and your call reflects it. Not so much necessarily in a, tra- in a transcript, maybe, but especially in the tone of voice because you're anticipating is the guy going to score easily. All right. You're not going to get up to a fever pitch. Is it going to be a close play, you know, and then, then you begin to anticipate that. So what was lost and, I'm sure the other announcers you've talked to have mentioned this when guys were doing games remotely, most Mm -hmm. were skillful enough to, to do a good job, but that was what was missing. You were reliant on, basically you were seeing and calling exactly what the person at home was seeing. You didn't have the advantage of that broader view. And it did lead to some either missed calls or hesitant calls that weren't as present and weren't as exciting as, as if the guy had been in the booth.
0: Oh, absolutely. It was, it was, it was, it was disastrous, but not as disastrous as I'd feared because I thought maybe some teams would pinch the pennies and never go back to it. And and a couple of them uh-huh. were slow and yes. straggling, but, but, but I think everybody is back. Boy, the description of, of, of like a play at the plate with a relay maybe it's a double in the gap it was, it was beautiful because th- that is the stuff that I think is so special to be able to see um, yeah. from, from that perspective. It's funny the play this week where Ellie De La Cruz throws out Corbin Carroll at the plate as he's trying yes. to stretch a triple to an inside the park home run. And everybody I've talked about that play with this week is like, Oh, can you believe it? Just that? Cause it has everything that those are the Those are the best plays in the game. Those Mm -hmm. are better than home runs to me. There's where there's that much going on and it's a long time. You get to talk when you're describing a play like that. Yeah.
1: And that play had something about it that reminded me of Bo Jackson throwing Harold Reynolds out at the plate. It wasn't just a great play. It was a play that reordered the base runners understanding of what was possible. Like Harold Reynolds was so stunned. I can't be out on this play. Well, Bo Jackson was freakishly talented and athletic. He made a throw that Harold Reynolds, a very fast runner, and experienced player, could not have anticipated. And we know that Ali De La Cruz throws as fast as as most elite pitchers. I mean, his throws have been, have been measured at 97, 98 miles an hour. So
0: That one was at 99.7. It was at 99.7, that throw uh, that's, on that play. So,
1: so that's probably his highest measured velocity to this point. And, you know, a base runner and even a third base coach has an intuitive sense of all these things. You know, what can we expect here? He might, he might gamble. It's not going to be a perfect throw. It's not going to be right on the plate. So I'm going to be safe unless it's perfect and the tag is perfect. I'm going to be safe. But what Carol, who's one of the fastest runners in baseball, did not take into account is that now the relay is coming from a guy who throws harder than anybody else. I've never experienced this before. So he'll be, he'll be forewarned the next time.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, Bob, is there a specific item when you're doing a baseball game, Mm-hmm. that you like to have with you in the booth. Could be a good luck charm, a talisman, or anything that you absolutely yeah. need to do the game that is unique to you.
1: Well, my only thing, and I have it with me almost all the time. I don't happen to have it on me right now, but uh, I have my 1958 Mickey Mantle baseball card uh, I that know. I always have in my jacket pocket when I'm calling a game. And I, But by the same token, if I go out to dinner, I have it. One of the dinner last night, I had it with me. There's always an off chance. Now I'm not. I'm not really a superstitious sort, sort. But there's an off chance. It still happens. People will ask me, strangers, "Do you have that mantle card?" And I don't want to disappoint them. <laughs> and when I do produce it, they're delighted. Like 50, 60 year sixty-year-old people, they're delighted to see it. So I don't. I don't want to disappoint them. So especially for a baseball broadcast, I would. I would feel naked. If I went into a booth to call a game and didn't have the 58 mantle with me. Now, a more practical thing wow. is I always take binoculars with me because uh, there are there are times when you want to see something up close that the truck is not going to give you. You just mm-hmm. want to examine something a little bit more closely. Sometimes it's between innings, like what's going on in the dugout and you can alert the truck to that and they might find it for you, but sometimes you just take your own initiative.
0: My, um, I I, I wonder about scoring. I just had Bob Carpenter on a previous episode and, and mm-hmm. I use his book as do so many. Um, also Marty, Marty Brenneman's answer yep. to that question was the number one pencil. He used to use the number one pencil only, and he couldn't get it anywhere. So he ended up buying it by the case. And I had never wow. known the number one pencil existed. Yep. Um but but w- what have you used to score with and has that evolved yeah. through the years for you?
1: I luckily was right here under this desk. Now, this is my advantage as a guy who did the game of the week in the eighties and only all star games in postseason in the nineties, and now just the occasional game for MLB network. So the only time I'm doing consecutive games, essentially, is in the postseason. Uh, and it's never more than five in the division series. So I can do this. Whereas the guy is doing 162. Almost all of them have a notebook so they can go back to yesterday's game or the last time these two teams met. And didn't that guy throw tight on this guy? And that's why this guy's huh. glaring at him this time. There's a there's a backstory. So they couldn't do this. This is my scorecard. Can you see it?
0: I can pull it back okay. a little bit towards you. Yeah. Is, it is, it is that blurred? hand? Is, is it, I got it. Is that hand created by you? What is um,
1: that? It, it was created by a graphic artist friend of mine <clears throat> in St. Louis in the eighties when I started doing the game of the week on NBC. And the point oh of it is that while I might have index cards and other notes, I'm getting as much as humanly possible. <laughs> Onto this giant scorecard, so that mm-hmm. so that the spaces to put in the names on the lineup are bigger. The spaces for notations for six three or you know a triple or whatever it is are bigger, so that I can put in it was a three one pitch. It was a slider. I can put stats in. The defense is up here. Uh, the pitching changes are over here. But then there's this whole side on both sides, just flip it over depending on which team is a fat for other notes so that I'm not doing this all the time. Yeah. I guess on a podcast, people don't realize what I'm doing I'm turning turning my head from side to side. Um, No, most of it is right in front of me so that I don't have to search as much. And then once I've made all these notes, uh, some of it I transfer because you don't know. You're working the night before. Uh, you don't know what the lineup's going to be exactly. So then you transfer some of it over to the little slot where the number two hitter is or the number eight hitter is. There's even a space at the bottom for the bench. And you put left, right, switch, so you know what the what the bench is. And then – and this is an advantage that the local announcer doesn't have because I'm ju- just doing that one game. And even if I'm doing a postseason series – It's always the same two teams, Um, but I look it over so that I've essentially memorized it or I'm familiar with it so that when I glance at it, I'm not reading it again. It's a a reminder. It's a reminder of something Mm -hmm. I've already internalized. This works very well for me. I don't think it would be practical for somebody who's doing a game day in, day out.
0: Uh, it's it's a beautiful uh visual though. I'm glad you showed it to me, having all that extra space and then the flip over to have the other team on the other side. I haven't talked to anybody who who does that. You designed it that way. You knew you needed you knew exactly yeah. what you needed and, and had a friend tweak it the way that it works best for you. That's
1: that that's right. And one time one time I during it was a playoff game like 2013, 2014, Cardinals and Dodgers. Uh back then, MLBN had two games in the playoffs uh, each year, one in the national league and one in the American league. So I'm doing the game at Dodger stadium and I did get distracted, which you shouldn't do. You know, maybe the producer saying, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And I didn't flip the card over. So the Dodgers, the Dodgers had had were in the field and I started saying, well, so coming up and I forget who it was might've been Austin Barnes or somebody, uh, whoever was catching for the Dodgers. And it took me like two pitches to realize, you moron, the Cardinals are at bat. <laughs> you better flip the damn thing over. So then I made it. <laughs> then I made a joke out of it. And I guess, well, well, perhaps it would be advisable to flip this card over. Uh, Al Michaels called me, got a kick out of it.
0: Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, you know, I mean, people mess up. I mean, I'm 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 with there with with Boog last night. We're listening to Miller, and Miller got caught doing something. He started a sentence he couldn't quite finish, but he's so artful that I'm sure nobody noticed, other than yeah, maybe Boog who had to alert me to it. It happens all the time.
1: Well, you know, if you're skillful, you can turn a bobble. It's almost like uh, a shortstop bobbles the ball doesn't mean he can't get the yeah. out. He hasn't completely it. So you you can jazz, you you can you can right. That's right. Or it's jazz. You just you just riff. But also, yes, it's
0: like you make the mistake, make the mistake once it's a mistake, do it twice. It's jazz. See, I leaned into it like
1: that. Yeah, you got to lean into it. Um, You know, Johnny Carson used to do that all the time. If a joke bombed, it became funnier than if the joke had connected. Uh, But that's partially a product of having the trust of the audience. If the audience already likes you and accepts you, then a then a misstatement or some kind of awkward moment, uh, they forgive you for it, and they may even embrace it. You know, Vin Scully didn't yes. make many mistakes. And even when he did make a mistake, his way of getting out of it was so artful. This must have happened 15 years ago. And I don't remember the exact circumstances except the bases might have been loaded and it was an extra base hit and guys are running everywhere. And he had the wrong guy arriving at third base and you know he's doing the game by himself. So he can't, you know, bounce it off somebody else. And so when he realizes that it's wrong and he sets it straight, then he goes, easy, Scully, easy, <laughs> like he's talking to himself. He's going kind of like, slow down, he's like, easy, Scully, easy. Or, or, he's, or he's channeling Red Barber from 1952, giving the young wow. Scully, you know, some advice.
0: Wow. And you know that at that moment, all the Dodger fans are like, you got this, Vin. All yeah, right. That's all right. You got this, buddy. Yeah. That's right. Oh, God. Uh, um. All right. Uh, tell me a moment that you loved in the booth that we ought to go pull and listen to. Uh, First thing that comes to your mind that you're comfortable, everyone hearing, assuming that we can find it.
1: You know, this one probably is known to some of your uh, listeners. And I didn't expect the questions just popped in my head. It's maybe not the best example, but 1995 division series, Red Sox at Indians, as they were then known Um, game goes, 15 innings. There's some rain and Tony Pena on a 3-0 pitch, um, homers to win it, and I was so surprised by it. The call is accurate, but it also reflected the kind of surprise that someone in the stadium would feel. I've never had that opportunity. When you were active, your managers weren't that desperate. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. When I was active. oh man! Spells good night against his old teammates sitting on a 3 0 pitch. And this team that won 27 games in its final at bat, that had 48 come from behind wins, that was 13 0 in extra inning games, did all those things when Tony Pena connected. Euchre was talking about something, saying some funny thing, because no one anticipated that he'd swing at the 3 0 pitch. So I had to jump over him a little bit. But it worked out OK.
0: That's uh, well, that's nice, because if you remember it, because it was honest and yeah, and, and, and even if and 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 it and you know, it represented what the fans were probably feeling and thinking.
1: Yeah, it was honest, but it was also uh, professionally accurate. You know, if it was if it yeah. was just a gut reaction and it missed the dotting of the I's and the crossing of the T's, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be so happy about it. And it's been called to my attention years later because apparently it's on YouTube. So people have told me that they've seen it.
0: Wow. That that's really cool. Um, if I were to ask you about the, uh, the Marlins walk off to win a world series, Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't get, it doesn't get much bigger uh, as moments go than that. Do you do, what did it feel like in that moment for you?
1: You know, it's a national broadcast. So you know that, and it's important, uh, who's the home team? And this is something that fans should realize and often don't. Well, he sounded more excited when such and such happened than when such and such happened. That's a natural thing. You've got got the headset on. You're hearing the mix of crowd sound. You're going to have to raise your voice without even thinking about it to get above the tumult of a home crowd. And you don't have to have the same reaction. If there's a hush, sometimes a guy could do something great in a baseball game for the visiting team. You might as well be overlooking the 18th green at Augusta. But a, a single in the fourth inning in a postseason game in front of a raucous crowd might seem more exciting. So there's there's that element to it. As it happened, the Marlins were the home team, so. when when the game went to the ninth or bottom of the ninth or extra innings, obviously only the Marlins could win it in walk-off fashion. And if the Marlins won, there was going to be uproarious cheering. If Cleveland had won, I was going to be appreciative, but I wouldn't have to get up over the crowd to do it. When the Indians took a one-run lead to the ninth, I tried to set it up by saying, there are people in South Florida who have waited five years for this because that's all the franchise that existed. There are people in Cleveland who have never seen it or have waited since 1948. So in a sense, and I was anticipating A, to frame it, but B, to give them their due in a way that the crowd would not. So in a sense for those fans, this wouldn't just be for the present day Indians who have rampaged through the American League in the 90s it would be for those who remember max alvis and sudden sam mcdowell or larry Doby or whatever it might be so i tried to give them their due in a quiet moment when nothing was happening now as i look back on that call craig council was the runner at third base right before the last pitch i think the second to last pitch i said so now it's council who carries the run that could win the world series as he leads away from third Renteria bats with two out, and a breaking ball is in there. And then Edgar Renteria singled off Charles Nagy's glove. The 0-1 pitch. A liner off Nagy's glove into center field. The Florida Martins have won the World Series. And I said, a liner off Nagy's glove into center field. You see the the cut from the director changes to council running home. And I say, the Florida Marlins have won the World Series. In retrospect, the reason I didn't say here comes counsel with the run that means was that I just said it. So that was my mindset at the time. But now, as that is replayed a gazillion times, it would have been better in isolation to say, here comes counsel with the run that means the Florida Marlins have won the World Series because he raised his arms in exultation. So the the current announcer has to think in a way that old-time announcers didn't, this is going to not only be replayed on highlight shows that night, but it might be in documentaries and and appreciations years and years from now. And they're not going to care about everything that was said in a three-hour broadcast. They're going to care about that moment. So I actually wish that I had said, here comes counsel but I had just said just prior to that council leads away with the run that could mean the world series. So it didn't occur to me to say it uh, that way in real, in real time.
0: Uh, the snippetizing of our culture, uh, removing context. I like that you didn't say it because you're thinking like a broadcaster. You're yeah, I'm, you're, I'm you're trying not moment. to double up. Yeah. That's right. Um, I um, uh, just a couple more minutes. I appreciate your, 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 your generosity with, with the time. I've told Ryan Sandberg this, that mm. the Sandberg game, I I liken it to when to when Elton John came um, just after he had recorded and released his debut album. He played some legendary shows at the Troubadour in Los Angeles and mm-hmm. everyone was there. And he says that changed everything. He just blew up onto the scene. And that is the equivalent for Ryan Sandberg on the national. Like, I feel like that game won him the MVP. Like, that game set him up for the profile that he maintained the rest of the way. Did you feel the the largesse of that uh, 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 either after the game or, or since? Have you felt the largesse of that for him? Since,
1: absolutely. It's the signature game of a Hall of Fame career. He might well have been the MVP anyway. And that was only late June. But that set him up in the national mind as the front runner for the Hall of Fame. And it drove the point home that the long, woebegone Cubs might actually be a contending team. Uh, so I, I recognize that shortly thereafter. And obviously, now, all these years later, Sandberg himself says that it's, it's the, uh, the central moment of his career. In a left center field. It's a tie ball game. Coordinating producer of baseball, Harry Coyle. 1-1 pitch. Oh! oh! It it deep left center. Look out. Do you believe it? It's gone. We will go to the 11th. Tied at 11. Sandberg in the Cubs' last at bat has twice delivered a game-tying home run. A solo shot of the night. A two-run blast with two out of the ten. But doing the game itself, I was just reveling in how classic it was. Saturday afternoon, there weren't lights at Wrigley Field until five years later, so we're all afternoon games. But this was a Saturday afternoon game of the week. And you had to understand what the game of the week meant then. It wasn't just one of a jumble of games that are everywhere now. If you lived in a non-major league city, you didn't mow the lawn during that portion of the (laughs) afternoon, you know, you, you live in Pensacola. This is your one opportunity to see Fernando Valenzuela face Johnny Bench or whatever it might've been, or Ron Guidry, try to get Carl Yastrzemski out. So you knew that it was a giant audience. Plus it was Cardinals Cubs. It made a difference that it was the Cardinals Um, with, you know, you see a lot of red in the stands at Wrigley. You see a lot of blue in the stands at Bush Stadium. Uh, There were central characters involved who were vivid, Whitey Herzog, Willie McGee, Ozzie Smith, and they all put an imprint on the game. Bruce Souter was bound for the Hall of Fame by acclamation, the best reliever in the game. Relievers were used differently then. He came in in the seventh and was still pitching in the tenth. He gave up both last-ditch home runs to Sandberg. So you had a setting and the television aspect was different, and the two teams. And then what unfolded was so improbable and so dramatic and so theatrical. And the movie The Natural had come out that spring. And so it occurred to me to say, we might be looking at the real Roy Hobbs, because this is almost too theatrical to be true. Um, so I was that's what I was thinking of in the moment. And it was only somewhat afterwards and continuing to this day that I realized how important it is to the history of the Cubs and to Ryan Sandberg's personal history. So much so, you're in Chicago, you probably know this, there have been at least three documentaries done about that game. Not just about the Cubs, which is a rich subject, but about that game and on that date every year. Somebody calls me, usually from Chicago, to be on and and talk about and talk about that game. And it's the only regular season game, other than the George Brett Pine Tar game. It's a regular season game that has a name, the Sandbird Game. And Matt, I swear it doesn't happen nearly as much. But for a long time, if I was in Chicago, I could be walking down the street and a cab driver might yell from the, the window, Bob the sandberg game
0: that's all he'd say
1: <laughs> was that like yeah I, I i know it's a code and he he wasn't so much applauding me as he was s- seeing me reminded him of a of a shared memory so we were yes. we were the same in that moment you know we both experienced it. we both remember it you give the guy a thumbs up
0: uh it's so beautiful um all right uh bob costas want to close by asking for the best piece of advice that you ever got um or or it could be something now you'd like to give but i want to ask for it in two parts one would be mechanically for actually doing the job of play by play and then the second part would be overall in terms of having a successful career and as i ask this to you i can't think of anybody who's had a more interesting and and varied and and compelling broadcasting career that I'll that I'll ever have a chance to talk to. So it gives a little added weight. No, no pressure. No pressure. Um, (laughs) But Yeah. So 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 first bit of advice is mechanically for doing the gig of play by play.
1: You know, Marty Glickman, who was the first of the long parade of sportscasters to come out of Syracuse University and really the Mm -hmm. first athlete, he was on the 1936 Olympic team with Jesse Owens and he played basketball and football at Syracuse the first jock-turned-broadcaster and became a first-rate Hall of Fame-level play-by-play announcer. And toward the end of his career, NBC hired him as their sportscasting coach. And he would make observations more to a youngster like me and fewer to someone like Dick Enberg. But even with Enberg, he might have an observation, respectfully submitted. Um, And so this is in the early 80s. And he says... Look, how old are you? Um, 30. You look like you're 15. You have to combat that. A mature person seldom talks rapidly, unless he has to, like on a fast break in, in basketball. Slow down. Don't talk as rapidly. Let what you say sink in. It will counter the the notion that you're, as he put it, a bright and well-informed kid, but still a kid. You have to work against that. Um, and I don't know that I ever fully conquered the appearance part, but I did. I did take. I did take his advice in terms of delivery, and I became. Wow. I think more met not not measured to the point of being plotting, but uh, but a better pace.
0: Yeah, I, I I think it it added gravitas right away.
1: It yeah. added a
0: sense of uh. That's right. Uh, uh yeah, it's it, so that's that that's beautiful. Exactly.
1: I I happen exactly. to see out of nowhere, you know, when YouTube intuits your interests. You know, I get every Rodney Dangerfield bit on the Johnny Carson show. I get all the <laughs> '60s and '70s music I love, and I get a lot of sports stuff. So this thing pops up from 1982. It's like some Regional NFL game, the Colts again, I get to. And I'm thinking, what is this? I'm going to watch like 60 seconds of it. It's me with, not with Bob Trump. Yet. I wasn't with Bob Trump yet. I was with Gene Washington, uh, the 49ers wow. receiver. And sure. I am so prepared, but I'm rattling this stuff off. Like it's, there's, there's no space. You know, I'm trying to prove myself. And it's like, my God. <laughs> you, yeah. you sound like you need to take that, of that's value. what that, that's, that's i'm thinking
0: how did, how did that, that's what marty glickman was how watching they ever
1: stick with me yeah yeah that's what glickman saw right me? there yeah that's what glickman <laughs> saw and he helped me correct
0: and then in terms of an overall career and this could be anything just you know some somebody who wants to broadcast and make content for their lives
1: just in this conversation and what i know of you you've Followed this advice, or maybe it's just the way your life has turned out, so it fits this bit of advice. Be as well rounded a person as you can be, read as much as you can, avail yourself not only of other broadcasters whom you admire, which is important, but avail yourself of the world. You know, when you read and you come across something that clicks with you, you're not going to plagiarize it, but it It broadens your understanding of the use of language, the way language can effectively be used. You know, no one should copy Vin Scully and those who did only sound like pale imitations of the master. But what I got from Vin Scully was the idea of pacing, the idea that anecdotes can be worked in. Now, Vin had a unique advantage beyond his incredible talent. And that was that he was working alone and the way Dodger games were directed was from the inside out. The, the, the picture was never imposed on him. They always followed him. So we had the, the canvas to do what he did uniquely well. So you can never replicate either his talent or his circumstances, but you can still take something from it. Um, you're not copying. You're saying that's, that's a thing. How, how does that work for me? Jack Buck had a great dry wit. He was a terrific banquet MC, and he would just throw in these sly asides on Cardinal broadcasts. Now, I'm not going to make the same type of joke Jack Buck made. He came from a different generation, but he did it effectively. That emboldened me to do the same thing. And this may, this seems like it's from left field, but a real turning point for me because I, I think you were implying that the Sandberg game was as much a turning point for me as for Sandberg. And it was important for me. But the single most important for me, important early thing for me in my television career was David Letterman. When hmm. I went on David Letterman the first time in 1982 to call elevator races, and they weren't looking for me, you know, he was one of these mock things, and I knew exactly what he wanted. He wanted it to sound like it came from Mount Olympus, straight face, mock serious elevator races. But he was looking for Marv Albert and Marv was out of town calling a basketball game. All right. So send Don Crick. He's not here. We got a kid here. We're we're taping in an hour. Send them up. So I go to the sixth floor. He had no idea who I was. He actually introduced me as Bob Costa, left the S off. But I was a fan of Letterman. I knew exactly what he wanted. And it got big laughs, so much so that he invited me back to sit on the set with him at the end of the show. And then he brought me back for subsequent stunts, but then also as a guest. Now, how does that tie in? Prior to that, Don Olmeyer, who ran NBC Sports, I was playing golf with him in Hawaii. He assigned me to the hula ball. And he said to me, as we're playing golf, you know, you tell me all these stories, you're really funny. If you never get any better than you are now, you'll be good. But if you can incorporate this personality that I'm seeing here, that's when you'll go to the next level. And the reason I couldn't at that point was I was so concerned with, not only am I a newcomer, I look like a kid. I'm so concerned with proving that I have the broadcasting chops, that it might've been technically excellent, but it lacked all the touches that I hope I was able to bring to bear. I had that in St. Louis because the audience knew me and I was on non-sports shows in St. Louis that that had comedic elements to it, but I was uptight at NBC. So I listened to what Allmire said, but I hadn't acted upon it yet. But when I got the reaction, not only from the audience, but from Letterman himself, that emboldened me. And I became um, what I hope is true you know, it's one of the fav- my favorite things that's ever been said about me. And I hope it's true. He's reverent and irreverent at the same time. Oh. It's like, I, if you could put that on my tombstone, I'd be delighted. I'd be happy to die tomorrow if they guaranteed they would put that on my tombstone. Because I think at my best, that was the idea. But at the beginning, I had the reverence, but not the irreverence. And eventually I was able to blend that
0: that is a perfect place to finish i I love that thank you bob costas what what a great pleasure
1: this is thank you very much matt it was a pleasure to do it
0: ah perfect the reverent and irreverent bob costas everybody on the key question of this whole podcast his answer was fascinating right once you master the basics and the mechanics then you can go wherever your sensibilities take you Bob's sensibilities are vast, as is his knowledge and curiosity. It makes complete sense that he was a great technician first, successful and mature beyond his years, then eventually had his personality confirmed and encouraged by Don Olmayer and by David Letterman. It makes me realize, frankly, how I grew up wanting to display the sensibilities and the gravitas of Bob Costas. And then, just lately, in terms of play-by-play, I've had to catch up frantically on the mechanics and the technical aspects but anyway i remain committed to this particular way to skin a cat because it's the only cat i have available before we get to the credits you will see more pbp episodes in your feed next week a playoff episode going to be so cool joe buck is going to join us And we are going to go over the greatest calls in baseball's postseason history as selected by all the guests of the podcast this year. Reached out to everybody. Dave Sims, John Miller, Marty Brenneman, Dan Shulman, everybody. And got submissions for what they think are the greatest postseason calls of all time. And Joe Buck and I will listen through them and talk through them with you. Can't wait. My producer on the PBP Voices of Baseball is the great Ryan Porth. My collaborator is James Vickery. The theme music comes from the great Kurt Morrison of Tributesaurus. Find the PBP Voices of Baseball on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts from 2400 Sports, Odyssey, and Major League Baseball. The PBP Voices of Baseball. I'll bring you the people who bring you the game.